Well, good evening and Merry Christmas. It's in sight. Not time to start shopping yet, but it's in sight. I haven't really. I haven't, you can just pray for me because I have not started yet. I'm a man of faith, man of foolishness. I don't know. One of the two. Seriously. Uh, hey, before we get uh, started, I want to let you know what we're going to be doing next. This is our last Wednesday night for this calendar year, for 2014. Uh, but we will start again in January 7th. That's the first Wednesday in January. And I want to let you know that we are going to just, what you'll see in coming out in the bulletin is we're just going to advertise the whole semester. What we're going to do next semester, January through May, is we're going to do what's called beginnings and endings. And I want to, talk, I want to teach about the book of Genesis and right after that, the book of Revelation. And so I think on Genesis, you'll see, we're going to dive in pretty deep and get some really powerful stories that will build your faith, but also I think you're going to be startled at how practically applicable that is. God's great stories for humanity. And then doing Revelation right behind it is really like just connecting all the Bible together. I think it'll be an interesting insight. But here's what I want to ask you, and I realize we're down a little bit tonight because of the weather and the season, but what we'd like to do is instead of just, just being a class after class after class, Let's start building just a regular deep Bible study on Wednesday nights. We have dinner beforehand. We have plenty of room in here. Invite your friends. Come for dinner and a deep Bible study, a midweek, you know, dive into the scripture and encouraging in our faith. If your friends go to another church, that's fine. We don't, we're not trying to get them to change churches, but not many churches do this in the middle of the week anymore, and we're committed to it. Uh, if your friends don't go to church, uh, they're atheists, Fine with me, I promise they will get an insight into the scriptures different than what they've heard before. And they can ask any question they want and Laura just won't ask me. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but seriously, let's start building this and make it an outreach into our community, a place to come on Wednesday night and have some dinner, have some fellowship, deep dive into the Bible. So that's what to expect this next semester is we're gonna do the book of Genesis and the book of Revelation. We'll skip everything in between and say we covered it, all right? Great. So. This lesson, we're going to finish our series on Christmas prophecy. And what we've done is we want to kind of prepare our minds and our hearts for Christmas. But we're going to, we've done it in a little different way. We started by looking at all the Messianic prophecies. We're not going to look at them all, but we're going to group them into three threads or three strands that weave together in Jesus in a very unlikely way. The first, if you remember, we looked at the book of Daniel. Daniel's very political in the sense that it begins to look at the kingdoms of the world and how Jesus Christ, the rock, is going to, in some way, shatter the kingdoms of the world and build a kingdom, a very political, socioeconomic kind of language, and build something that will last forever. Then we looked at a strand of prophecies around the story of David, David the king, the glory days of Israel under David and Solomon, and that basically using that image, you see all this messianic prophecy that cast the Messiah, the Christ, as a conquering king, someone who will bring this golden era where our enemies are defeated and we are then living in the way that God intends us to live. So that image of a conquering king. Well, we finished our lesson last time with kind of a discordant note. In other words, great, we're ready for Jesus to come. And about 520 BC, about 500 years before Jesus, Zechariah 
prophesies this. He says, Rejoice, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. Your king comes to you. It's like, yes, that's exactly what we've been hearing for 400 years. King David, the Messiah is going to be, remember, a shoot out of the root of Jesse. It's going to be a descendant of David. He's going to sit on David's throne. This whole idea of Jesus the Messiah is going to be this conquering king. Your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, that whole rescue idea of rescuing us from our enemies, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And that's what threw an interesting note into it because you don't think of a king who's going to come riding into town on a humble little donkey. They're going to come in with a motorcade, usually black SUVs with guys with guns in the front one and guys with guns in the back one, and then they jump out, and it's a big deal, right? That's not this picture. Well, it turns out there's a whole strand of prophecy that isn't the conquering king. It's the suffering servant. And it was such a disconnect that actually many of the ancient Jewish scholars decided that, you know what, maybe there'll be two messiahs. Maybe there's going to be a messiah son of David who's a conquering king, and maybe there's going to be another messiah that's a suffering servant. In other words, they were wrestling to try to figure out how can our messiah be a conquering king but also be a lowly, humble, suffering servant. It makes no sense at all. That's what I'd like to tie up in this lesson, is bringing this all together. So I want to tell you the story of a character in the Bible. We tend to form our, our knowledge oftentimes based on something we already know. A great example is they knew and had experienced, or certainly got taught in history class in school growing up as good little Jewish boys and girls before the time of Christ, about King David. So they have an image in our mind of what he did. I mean, he's a real character. He really did conquer the Philistines. Israel really did uh, grow. He and Solomon really were an international power. So you know this. God said, good, I taught you that so that I can use that idea to describe something you don't know, the Messiah. And we do that a lot. We get new ideas come to us by referencing an old idea. God did that with this story, too. So let me tell you just a little bit about Joseph, remind you of the Joseph story. Joseph, remember Abraham, about 2000 BC, son Isaac, a son Jacob. Jacob had another name. His name was Israel. So he ended up having, short story, 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, his kids, he had a, had a difficult family, and Joseph was one of the kids, and Joseph was a favored child. So you remember the story. Now we're about 1,800 years before Christ. So there's some real events happening with Israel that God is going to use to teach something about the Messiah. So let me just recap Joseph's life. So here's Joseph. He's a young boy. He's got all these brothers. And if you remember, he has a couple of dreams and he has, in his dreams, basically, what happens is his family is all bowing down to him. So he's the spoiled little kid who's favored by dad, and he has the gall to come to his brothers and say, oh, and by the way, I'm going to be the greatest, and you're all going to bow down before me. As you can imagine, 
that didn't go very well. And so they decided first, we'll kill him. Then they say, no, we better not do that. Let's sell him into slavery. And I know that sounds harsh, but I just have to admit, I thought about that many times with my little brother. I don't know about you, but I thought, yeah, one more time, into slavery you go. Well, they do. They literally sell him into slavery. He goes to Egypt. You may remember the story, so I'm just giving you the short version of the story. He goes to Egypt as a slave, and he's thinking, wow, I had these dreams. God, it seemed like God had a plan for me, and it seemed like there were great things in store for me, but here I am in Egypt, and I'm a slave in this household. But Joseph was blessed with certain natural abilities, and he kind of moves up in the household. He becomes kind of the leader of the household. So as slaves go, he's doing pretty well. But his master, Potiphar, gets into an argument with him because, as you know, he's falsely accused by the mistress of the household of doing something improper, and so he gets thrown into jail. So here's Joseph. He goes, boy, my life is terrible. You know, I was, God had a vision for me. Then, uh, you know, things were going great, sold into slavery. Well, then I climbed out of that and had made a life for myself, and now I'm unjustly accused, and here I am in jail. And so Joseph is going through a lot of trials. And this is kind of part of the Joseph story, is the idea of he's unjustly suffering for other people's actions, right? For his brothers who sold him into slavery, for Potiphar's wife who unjustly accused him. Well, while he's in jail, there are a couple of royal officials who end up there with him. And so they're talking and they have some dreams and it turns out Joseph has this ability to interpret their dreams for them and he does and it's a good turn for them and they get out of, of prison and they say, wow, this worked out great. We're going to remember you. We'll get you out of here. And he's like, finally, things are turning around. But they don't. They forget about him. That's been my experience being in jail too. People will not keep their promises to you. But so they don't keep their promise, and so now his hopes have fallen again. But in an interesting turn of events, the Pharaoh has a dream about the future of Egypt. He can't get anybody to answer, and somebody remembers, hey, you remember that guy that had that ability? Let's go get him. So they haul him out of prison. They take him in front of Pharaoh. There's some uh, paintings from the 1800s. This is in case what I'm saying is boring. I want you to look at some good art. This is... Joseph in front of Pharaoh, and he does interpret it, and Pharaoh is really impressed with his ability to understand these visions, this God-given ability that he had. And so, as you know, he gets elevated to number two in Egypt. It's a long story, and he just does some brilliant things, but he ends up becoming very powerful and very successful. So the Joseph story seems to be riches to rags, riches, rags, back to riches. In other words, it's this up and down story where he has been suffering through no particular fault of his own, but finally it seems like it's ended really well. In the meantime, just north of Egypt in the land of Israel, his brothers told dad, sorry, he died in a tragic uh, accident, and so life goes on for them. And so the family's growing in the nation of Israel, it's just a big family at this point, is growing, but there, as often the case, there's a drought and there's a famine. And so they took their herds, took their families, they're, they're going to die if they stay, so they go down to Egypt. 
and they're trying to get into Egypt and be allowed to stay there and water their flocks. If not, if they're thrown out, they're really literally facing starvation. I mean, it wouldn't be the first time it's happened. I mean, massive famine and death in that part of the world. So they go to, it's a long story, I'm giving you the short version, so they go to Pharaoh's and guess who they end up in front of? That's one of those oh no moments in life, right? And so here's Joseph saying, hey, you guys remember me? They're like, yeah, long time no see. Hope there are no hard feelings, you know, about that whole slavery thing, right? Well, it turns out there aren't really any hard feelings about that because here's a beautiful little passage out of Genesis. So the brothers are worried. They say, when we see him, he may kill us. He's the most powerful guy here, second most powerful guy in Egypt. So they sent word to Joseph saying, by the way, dad said before he died, uh, you should forgive us. Pretty smart move. I've tried that too, by the way, in my family and with mixed results. But here it works very well. He said, dad said, you should forgive us because we did wrong you and treated you badly. So please forgive the sins of your servants. And when their message came to him, Joseph wept. And so his brothers came, threw themselves down before him and said, we are your slaves. We are completely powerless. But Joseph said, and this is one of the most beautiful passages in the Bible, Genesis 50, 20. Don't be afraid. Am I God to be judging you? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. What an interesting turn of events. This has happened about 1,800 years before the time of Christ, and that's exactly true. Joseph's right. He said, I can now see that everything I suffered so unjustly, God was pointing to here. He said, it's no credit to you guys. You guys intended it for harm, but God knew better. And so here I am in the one place that can save the entire nation of Israel, such as you are, and preserve the future of God's people. He said, it's unbelievable that everything came together right here and here I am. And sure enough, he settles them in Egypt, you may remember, and they prosper. And then we move on to the Moses story in a few hundred years. But he's right where he needs to be. That's the Joseph story. It's the story of suffering unjustly, but at the end you realize God had a purpose I never saw in this, and he actually accomplished something magnificent out of it. Well, I'm going to jump into prophecy in a second, but I can't help stopping here for just a little faith lesson. That is so true today, just like it was 3,800 years ago. I'm going to suggest to you that that's really the meaning of Romans 8.28, that famous, beautiful passage in the Bible. Uh, here's a pretty good translation of it. In all things, in all circumstances, God works together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But that first part we quote so often because it gives us the confidence that in all circumstances, no matter what they may seem, God works together for good. Not necessarily my comfort, not necessarily what I want, but it's a promise that there's good being accomplished here. This is just real life illustration of that. Romans 8.28 could just be describing Joseph's life. And that is, he suffered, he went through difficulties, he wondered, is, you know, is God with me, is he not? It's not working out like I thought. But then he gets to the point where he realizes, this is unbelievable. Look what God has done. Everything that happened to me was purposeful 
to be here now to accomplish the saving of the entire future of Israel. So that is as true now as it was then. And I hope that you take an encouragement from the Joseph story because one of the lessons out of that, again, is repeated all over the New Testament, and that is your God has a plan. And I know that your trials and mine are as nothing compared to Joseph, nothing compared to some of the characters in the Bible, and that's on purpose, by the way. That's so that you and I can say, you know what, if he was big enough to orchestrate this for Joseph, he's definitely a big enough God to orchestrate the trials in my life. And that's what God wants you to know, and that's what he wants you to feel. And that's a reason to celebrate at this season, is that our God is big enough that no matter what I go through, he is big enough to work together in all things to accomplish the saving of many lives in this case. Well, back to our story. So we have the idea of the suffering servant. God is going to use that visual story, like he used David to give a description of the Messiah as a conquering king. He's going to use that image and reinforce it to give another picture of the Messiah as a suffering servant. And so I just want to look at just a few of these prophecies. So it begins with something kind of tame. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. This is considered by the Jews historically as a messianic prophecy. You don't usually think of your king as picking up the baby and wiping the tears off their eyes. You know, here you're beginning to get, again, a reinforcement of the idea of not just a conquering king who's running your nation, but a very you see how much more personal this gets? This isn't, hey, we're going to have a king or a president who's going to lead us to prosperity. This is, I'm going to have someone who stoops down, picks me up, and wipes the tears, who's there in my grief. You're getting a little different picture, uh, if you will, of, of this Messiah. Here's another one you're probably familiar with. This is again from Isaiah. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. You're going to recognize this because in Luke chapter 4, Jesus goes into a synagogue in Nazareth, and it's uh, time for the reading. And remember, he unrolls the scroll, and guess what, by chance, not by chance, guess what the reading is? It's this passage in Isaiah. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me. Remember what I told you Messiah means? In Hebrew, it means an anointed one, and it's often translated anointed one. And that's what Christ means in Greek. So he said, he has anointed me. This is always considered a messianic prophecy. To preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. To proclaim freedom for the captives. Release from darkness for the prisoners. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And the day, and Jesus doesn't quote this part. And the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. Again, you begin to see this idea of a very servant kind of mentality. I came to bring good news. I'm binding up the brokenhearted. I'm going to free people who are captives. I'm going to uh, proclaim the Lord's favor. So you begin to see this idea of, a, of the Messiah as serving people, not as ruling people. And very inward focused as in lifting up the people of God and healing them as opposed to smiting the enemies. This is causing a great deal of confusion about the Messiah because these images are very different images. Here's a really famous one out of Isaiah 53. 
speaking again about the Messiah. And this is just blows their mind. It's like you can't imagine this happening to your king. He was despised and rejected by men. He's a man of sorrows. He's familiar with suffering. This is Joseph. This, they're thinking, this is the Joseph story right here. As one whom men uh, hide their faces from, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. We didn't value him. His brother sold him into slavery. He's my brother. Yeah, right. You know, you're gone. You're out of here. You're annoying. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. You get this sense of injustice. In other words, suffering because of something someone else did wrong. This, this is the Joseph story here. Yet we considered him stricken by God. In other words, he's in prison. He must have done something wrong. God doesn't care for him. Afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. And here you see the Jesus idea. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. That's a Joseph, that's a, clearly a Jesus story, but I want you to think Joseph's story. Joseph suffered many wounds, many uh, physical ailments, many difficulties, many slights, much depression. He suffered, and what happened? Who ended up winning out of that deal? Israel, his brothers, end up at the end and go, because of everything you went through, we have peace. We get to settle in Egypt, and now instead of a drought and a famine, we have green pastures for our flocks, our children are playing, you know, we started up the soccer league again, and life is good. So by his wounds, they were made whole. That's the Joseph story. So before the time of Jesus, they're really wrestling with this. They're expecting the Messiah to be something that sounds really different, and they could not reconcile these prophecies. Again, I told you that uh, in ancient times, they thought there would be two messiahs because they just couldn't reconcile that this could be happen in one person. The other thing that happened, and this is a more modern idea, is in modern times, many Jews understand this idea as being about the nation of Israel, that Israel is considered to be God's son, God's child, Israel has gone through many wounds. I mean, think Holocaust, think persecution, think all the things that Jews, the nation of Israel has gone through. They said, this isn't about the Messiah. This is actually about Israel. And Israel went through all those things to still perpetuate to the world how you're supposed to live. In other words, they understand themselves as still being God's messengers to the world for justice and peace and social rightness and see themselves as having paid a dear price for it. So today, many Jews understand these, because one of the common questions is, why did they not see Jesus in this? Because a lot of times, particularly in, in the past few centuries, Jews understand Israel as fulfilling this, not a specific Messiah. And part of the reason is, just couldn't, couldn't reconcile the conquering king and the suffering servant and get those two things to come together. So they've really struggled with that and I'd like to just spend a few minutes then and talk about, unless we have some questions first, good. We'll uh, spend some time and talk about how then, and this is one of the really unique things, how then does Jesus bring all of this together? So I want you to have a little bit of sympathy for the people of Jesus' time, not too much sympathy, but I want to put it in context that for us looking back, 
you say, how could you miss Jesus? Look at all these prophecies and look how he fulfilled it. I just want you to understand that they have been given some very vivid images and very vivid prophecies about the Messiah, but they were confused about it. They didn't understand how God could, how anyone could possibly fulfill all of these things. Does that make sense? Well, let's talk about how Jesus did. And the key to understanding that is, is this passage. It's going to sound a little off the wall to you, but this is, to me, the key to understanding what God is actually doing. In Ephesians 6, uh, you talk, this is the part where he's talking about putting on the armor of God, and he, he reveals something fundamental about how God sees the world and how I'm going to suggest that we need to see the world. He says this, put on the full armor of God, so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. And by the way, that word schemes is really where we get our word methods. So this is against the, the plans, the methods, the schemes, the ways of the devil. You need to be prepared for what the devil is doing. He has a plan. I don't know if you ever thought of this. If you thought about the devil as basically being just a pointy-eared and pointy-tailed guy who just runs around tormenting people at random. Satan has a plan. Satan has an objective. He is in rebellion against God. And that's acknowledged in this passage. It says there's actually Satan rebelling against God, and Satan wants to enlist us as servants in that process. It goes on to say this, because our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world, and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That is an interesting perspective. It's not a perspective that the Jews had about what was going on. They understood in sort of the infancy of God dealing with his people as this is about us and our government and the other governments of the world and how we are going to become a powerful kingdom to lead the world in a very political, social, and economic sense. And by the way, that is still the idea of many Jews today, is that we will come to some kind of social economic supremacy in order to do God's work in the world. There are some Christians who see that role for Israel as well. And I'm gonna argue to you that I understand that point of view, but I do not believe that's God's point of view. What God is saying, look, there is a cosmic battle here. It's a one-sided battle, but there's this cosmic battle of evil and trying to get mankind to serve evil. And God says, my purpose is to defeat those schemes of the devil. Through Satan and mankind's sin, death entered the world. Rebellion enters the world brokenness enters the world. Fallenness is a way that we talk about it. God is actually trying to rescue humanity from all of that, not just political success against our enemies. And sometimes we fall into that too. I know we're thinking, oh, those poor dumb people at Jesus' time, why could they not see this? You and I do this too. If you think about your and my prayers, and I'm not trying to make us feel guilty, but I, I don't want our world to shrink to that small, if you think about your and my prayers, how often are my prayers about my physical circumstances, my physical problems, my boss, you know, 
is a goofball and my finances aren't working out and this and that. I'm not telling you that's bad. I'm just saying that's the modern equivalent of getting the Messiah to come to deal with my temporal problems only. Does that make sense? Did that connect? They thought the Messiah was going to come and deal with the here and now circumstances. He's going to come. He's going to have an army. He's going to defeat the Romans. He's going to restore our kingdom. And we're going to once again become a superpower in the world. That's kind of a small vision. That's like Terry saying, hey, Jesus came so that I could have a better life and he could solve my problems and I'd have some affluence and my teeth would be whiter and my clothes would be nicer and my kids would behave better. I mean, you see, you understand what I'm saying? We do that too. Sometimes we box the Messiah into some very temporal kinds of ideas. This verse is a key in how God thinks about the world. He says, actually, your battle is not against your finances. It's not the relationship struggles you have. He says, God says, I care about those things, but I want you to step back with me and understand your battle is actually against the rulers, the powers, the authorities in this dark world. There are forces that want to ruin your life. His name is Satan. So it's not just about those things. And this is important. Let me just stop and let's have another little faith lesson. This is the key to having a, a different perspective in our lives. This is the key. I'm going to argue it's one of the keys to having joy because I think it moves us out of circumstantial things into understanding God's purposes in a bigger way. Have you ever wondered, by the way, how Jesus could be on the cross? This is one of the most absurd statements in the Bible if you don't understand this. Jesus is on the cross, and he says what? Forgive them, Father. They do not know what they are doing. Now, I know you think, oh, that's heartwarming. No, that's dumb. I mean, if, if you don't see the world this way, that makes no sense. Because frankly, they did know what they were doing. They knew exactly. They were trying to kill him. They were trying to get, shut him up. They were trying, the Roman soldiers were trying to put nails in his hands. They were doing, they knew exactly what they were doing. What did Jesus mean? He says, you know what? Those poor, foolish, lost people do not understand that they are effectively serving the powers of evil. If they knew that they could choose life with God or disillusionment and death by serving Satan. Do you understand what he's saying now? He says those poor, foolish, lost, lost children, they are doing things that they have no idea what they're doing because they don't understand what this cosmic issue that's going on. When we begin to see things that way, it's, you, you cannot really forgive the way God calls us to forgive. It's hard to have compassion. God calls us to have compassion for if you think all these people are doing it to you and it's their fault and they deserve exactly what they get back. You really can't do the Sermon on the Mount very well without a bigger perspective. Are people responsible for the unkindness and the deeds that they do? Yes, they are. But there's more to it. That's the key to seeing people as lost, not just evil. Are they doing evil things? Yes, they are, but there's more to it. They are also lost. They do not see what is happening here. That's God's perspective. And when it becomes your and my perspective, we get, if you will, out of the weeds of every little daily event. You know, if it goes well today, I'm happy. If it didn't go well, I'm not. If my boss was nice to me, I'm happy. And, you know, if she was not nice to me, I'm not very happy. It's like, you know, there's something much bigger going on. 
And asking God to micromanage my events is sort of like expecting the Messiah to just come and make America great, because that's what the Jews thought. So the key here to Jesus fulfilling it is he's not just going to fulfill that little thing. He's going to do something much, much bigger. So let's talk about then how it starts to make sense what Jesus does. Think about this. Jesus comes. He's a baby. He's born in a manger. He's spitting up. He's pooping. He's got dirty diapers. That's our king. This makes no sense whatsoever in that sense, but it does from God's perspective because he's winning the battle against death and evil. So here is an interesting little passage. This is a pretty Christmas passage, Philippians 2. This is a little piece of it. It says, you know, your attitude ought to be the same as Jesus. Well, I agree with that. See the world the way he saw the world. Who, even though he was God, did not hold on to being equal with God, but he actually made himself nothing. He, he became a baby. He became about the weakest thing in the world. Made himself nothing, taking on the nature of a servant. You see the Joseph story coming through again? The all-powerful king actually is going to become the suffering servant. Takes on the nature of a servant. He becomes like a human when, he was, when he's God. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbles himself. Again, you get the picture of the suffering, humble servant image, and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. It's intentional that Jesus comes as a defenseless baby to a poor Jewish peasant girl in a nowhere place, I mean, Bethlehem, right? And in a nowhere place in the world. That's intentional because it actually serves God's image of the Messiah, He's going to defeat death with the suffering servant model. The cross, and you think of the cross, you think of all things, fine, if he's got to be born a baby and show that God is going to turn weakness into strength, God's going to take suffering servant, and just like Joseph, he's going to take the low things of the world to accomplish the great purpose, because that's really what happened. Joseph's just a kid that got sold into slavery. He's nothing, and yet he ends up, whoa, this guy's, this dude's a big deal. He he accomplished huge things. God used him to do huge things in the world. So fine, I'll buy this, God. You got the baby, and sure enough, he's going to end up being the Messiah. Nobody saw that coming. That was pretty cool. But why the cross? Why can't he then have the army they wanted him to have? Remember Jesus when they realized, oh, gosh, against all odds, this guy's the Messiah. Let's just go get the AK-47s. You guys get your pickup trucks and shotguns, and let's just go have at it. We're going to go defeat the Romans. But he says no. Instead, what does he do? He goes to the cross. Boy, that makes no sense at all. Even if your Messiah is a, a, a suffering servant, he's not supposed to die before he defeats your enemies. So you see this uh, image from Psalm 22. This is back in David's time. You see this playing out. Now, here is the cross. I'm just going to give you a little piece of it. Read Psalm 22. It is literally 900 years before the time of Christ describing exactly what's going to happen on the cross. He said, A band of evil men has encircled me. They pierced my hands and my feet. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. What does that sound like? That's the crucifixion. That's this image of a Messiah giving the ultimate suffering servant. In other words, he's going to die. I mean, even Joseph doesn't die. God takes Joseph and puts him in an exalted position in the end, right, so he can help people. But the Messiah's 
going to die. How can you possibly accomplish all of this through that? How can you get any kind of kingship out of that situation? The really unique idea here, and you just see kind of God's awesomeness in what he's doing, is he defeats evil through this idea of the sinless death on the cross to take our sins and reclaim us from the devil. We thought he was coming to defeat our temporal enemies. It turns out he came to cancel the mortgage on our souls. He came, those foolish people, they don't know what they're doing, but Jesus did, and he solved a problem we didn't understand that we had. Does that make sense? That's the manger in the cross. That's the suffering servant to unexpectedly defeat evil circumstances. With Joseph, it defeated hunger and death. With Jesus, it literally defeated death with a capital D. So you see that cycle of using the suffering servant in that way? It's just a powerful idea of God bringing that to fruition. But what about the conquering king? When does the conquering king come into play? Well, it's partly happened. You get a glimpse of it in that his kingdom does last forever. Even though the Jews, then the Romans, then the Muslims, and then all kinds of people throughout history have tried to stamp out the kingdom of God, in other words, tried to destroy Christianity, no one ever has. In fact, it's thrived. The Roman Empire that they so wanted Jesus to get an army and overthrow 200 years later is Christian, and nobody lifts a weapon to do it. So in a way they didn't expect, Daniel's prophecy came true. That kingdom of iron, the Roman Empire, the greatest empire the world's ever seen, with no army, ends up being defeated, if you will, becomes Christian by the year 313 AD. So he does fulfill the conquering king in a little different way, but then if you look forward, you see him bringing the suffering servant to redeem us, and then you see the conquering king. Let me read you a little passage out of the book of Revelation. Now we're looking forward a little bit, which isn't much to God. And he says this in Revelation chapter 19. Some people think this is uh, Armageddon. This is the big battle. I saw heaven open up, and there's a white horse. And the one sitting on the white horse is called Faithful and True. That's Jesus. In righteousness he judges and makes war. And now you're thinking, okay, now that's starting to sound like all those David messianic prophecies. Exactly. He judges with righteousness and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, many crowns. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, the blood of the Lamb, this cleansing blood. And the name of which he is called is the Word of God. This is the Messiah. The armies of heaven, now you see armies, armies of heaven behind the king, following him on white horses, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Now we pick up all that prophecy about striking down the enemies of God's people and laying low the nations. Here you see the, the conquering king idea come to play. <clears throat> then I saw an angel standing in the sun, come gather for the great supper of God, because this is when God will defeat them. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet 
who in his presence had done the signs and deceived so many people. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came out of the mouth of the one sitting on the horse. Here you see God saying, in my timetable, he said, I will have a conquering king, I will defeat all the forces of evil, but first I needed the suffering servant to redeem you and me. It's through Joseph that Israel is saved. It's through the suffering servant, the cross and the manger that you and I are saved, redeemed. And it is David on his throne coming to ultimately defeat evil. And then just to wrap up the Revelation story in chapter 20, when the thousand years are over, which we'll get to all of that, and we'll take a poll, see what your view is on the millennium. But my point today is, is that Satan is released from his prison. He goes out to deceive the nations, gets the big army. They marched the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people. But then fire comes down from heaven and devours them. And here's the key part. And the devil, Satan, who deceived them. Remember again, forgive them, Father. They have no idea what they're doing. They're deceived by the real battle here the deceptive power of evil, of Satan, who deceived them, was thrown into the lake of burning fire where the beast and the false prophet have been thrown. He defeats evil. He defeats death. And then in chapter 21, now describing heaven, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He'll dwell with them and they'll be his people. God himself will be with them. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. Nor shall there be mourning or crying or pain in other words, all of that fallenness, brokenness is gone, and death itself is defeated. So you see God actually bringing these threads together in Jesus Christ. It's all right there in history and in the New Testament of the suffering servant Messiah who saves us like Joseph and the conquering king Messiah who defeats death. Is that, isn't that just beautiful when you think that through? I don't fault Jews for not seeing that whole picture. As far as accepting Jesus as the Son of God, that's a different question. But I understand that sometimes it's very difficult to see how God does things because it's in such unexpected ways. And that's one of the reasons I think he gives you and me the benefit of hindsight. We can see his unexpected actions in the past. And I hope that equips us to expect the unexpected in the future, particularly in your and my life. Okay? Does that make sense? All right. So the, the beauty of Christmas, give a practical lesson, on a cosmic scale is God, what seem to be very conflicting ideas from God, he ends up resolving in a way that now that you and I look at it, we go, that's absolutely brilliant. Once I see the world the way God sees the world, that there's more than just the interactions and the difficulties of life, that there's something bigger happening. There's more than just my 70 or 80 or 90 years here. There's actually, I'm really an eternal being. Now all of a sudden, I'm glad that the Messiah wasn't just the conquering king to come and rescue me from my daily life problems and maybe give us a great 90-year lifespan or 100-year lifespan and then does nothing for eternity. Instead, you see God saying, I'm going to give you what you desperately need and you do not understand. I will save you and buy you back from evil for eternity. 
and I will indeed deal with this universe and evil in this place as well. And so he brings it about in an unexpected way. And here's my encouraging word to you. As you go out this week, you're going to say, it's really great that I understand the cosmic nature of what God is doing. I hope that that makes you think God is more awesome than you thought. But on Thursday morning, when you go to work and your boss is being mean to you again, I also want you to take heart in this sense. I want you to think, you know what? There's more to life than this. I will not be defined by the events of my life. Because that's really what God said. I will not stoop and make my plans so small as to be about the events in your life. And I want you to look at the world and say, my happiness, my joy will not be defined by these little ups and downs of life. My God is actually working in all things for my good. It's our failure of faith when we shrink our world to the point where we say, God, stoop down and just fix my little world. God says, no, here's my hand, stand up and look beyond this little world. And God says, I will indeed work in all things for good. And if he did it in that unbelievably unexpected way in the past, he will do it in very unexpected ways in your life. So I want you to, some people say expect a miracle. I don't say expect a miracle. Expect God to show up and expect to be surprised by how he does it. But you know what's hard to see? It's really hard when I can't see farther than just the little bit of problems in front of my face. It's very hard to see what God is trying to do in the world. It's hard to see the surprising and beautiful and redemptive things God is doing all around me when I've shrunk my world to just the circumstances of my life. So let's raise our eyes up a little bit and look around. And this is a big challenge because I know you're going to go to the mall. This is going to be the test of this theology, right? If this theology can survive the mall parking lot, then you have faith because I want you to see God working in beautiful, powerful ways around you. And now all of a sudden you begin to... to watch and see if this will, this will happen to you. You will begin to elevate and no longer be a slave to the, the little events of our lives. And that's when you begin to enjoy the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You can't get those things when you're down in the weeds. You're up and down with the circumstances of life. It's only when you start looking around at the surprising and unbelievable things God is doing to move things in your life that you can begin to go, you know what, I can relax a little bit. I'm no longer a slave to what happened on Thursday or the fight I had you know, with my spouse on Friday. It, this is bigger than that. God's doing big things. So walk out and look around to see what God is doing. Let's get our heads out of the, out of the weeds and out of the small things and look beyond that. Your God sent a Messiah who died on a cross to be a suffering servant for you, and you have the promise that he is the powerful conquering king. And I don't know about you, but some days I'm embarrassed to be worried about the little stuff I'm worried about. So that's my Christmas gift to you. Even if you wait to the last minute to shop, even if your wife returns everything that you got her, true story, but I'm over it now, even if she takes everything back that you got her that one Christmas, even if those things happened, 
right? That does not define what God's doing in my life. So when we say Merry Christmas, not making a circumstantial wish to you, I hope every little thing goes well for you at Christmas. Let me just tell you, it won't. It won't. And if you're dependent on that, then good luck. You will have the typical stressful, can't believe I hate my relatives kind of Christmas, right? Merry Christmas means this, lift our eyes up a little bit. If God is for us, who could possibly be against us? What circumstances can possibly drag us down? So put a smile on your face, say Merry Christmas to everyone you see. It'll just confuse them, especially the people in businesses who aren't allowed to say Merry Christmas back because they're nice people. But say Merry Christmas just because you can just see them freeze up, right? Okay, that's my little guilty pleasure, all right? But go spread some cheer. Look for what God's doing. Bless you guys.